Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, 14. Scripture says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be here gathered together to worship with your people. Uh, We pray we never get to the point that we don't truly realize that we are poor and blind and wretched and miserable and naked before you. We're sinners and that we need you, Lord. We pray we never get to the point that we think otherwise. Uh, We pray if there's any in here today that's filled with pride and arrogance uh, against the King of kings and Lord of lords, we pray you would bring them into their knees today to show them their need of Christ. We do pray that uh, as Mike preaches your word today that you will enable him to do so by your spirit. Give him the grace and strength to do so and the wisdom. We pray you'll give him the uh, calmness of spirit to do so. And we pray that he'll accurately uh, interpret your word. And yet we pray that the Holy Spirit will do a great work here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we come to our final church of the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. It has been a great adventure looking at these seven different churches. We have seen seven churches with very different circumstances, each one of them. We have seen that those who are struggling with tough trials and circumstances have often been revealed to be the most faithful of believers. And we've seen the ones who appeared to have it easier were more susceptible to falling. We have seen that tolerance of evil leads to a stern rebuke from the Master. We've seen having the name Christian means nothing if we're unwilling to humbly submit and embrace Jesus. One thing has become very clear. The solution to every problem is Jesus. The solution for every trial is Jesus. The hope in every circumstance is Jesus. And today will be no different. Today we see the opposite of last week's faithful church in Philadelphia. Today we're going to see the worst of churches after covering the best. If there was one church you don't want to look like, it would be the church in Laodicea. By the way, 
You also don't want to be a Christian like those in Laodicea either. You don't want to be a part of a Christless church. And you don't want to be a Christless Christian. Let's give a little background to this church and the city. Laodicea was close to Colossae. Colossae, you know, the book of Colossians was written to it. Colossae was about 10 miles away from it. Colossae is on the upper level of the Lycus Valley, while Laodicea is on the lower level of the valley. A third city in the area was Hierapolis, Hierapolis, lying six miles north of Laodicea. The Lycus Valley was an area, area was one of the most traveled east-west trade routes. Laodicea was the guardian of the road. It also had a north-south trade route up to Pergamum and Sardis that intersected in Laodicea. So this was a well-known location. Laodicea was dependent on the surrounding areas for their drinking water. Commerce and manufacturing and medicine combined to make this one of the wealthiest cities in Asia Minor. The city's great wealth was seen in it not needing funds from Rome when it had major earthquakes that destroyed much of the city. They had all the funds within to go ahead and replace things. A reference is made in the Talmud that describes the Jews in Laodicea as living a life of ease and laxity and liberty. It appears that Laodicea could have been evangelized by Epaphras, Paul writes to Colossae and appears, and it appears Paul had never met the people of this area, at least at the time of the writing of the letter in Colossae. Paul had written a letter to them in Colossians 4.16, it states, and they had the letter read to the Colossians after it was passed on. So in other words, it probably passed around to all three of these areas. Like I said, there were three cities that were closely related. You see them here on our little Map, there's Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae. And Colossae is actually a higher elevation, and Hierapolis was a higher elevation. So if you'll see as we go along, this is extremely important. This was like a dead spot or a low spot in the valley. We'll talk about that as we go along. The water of Hierapolis were filled with calcium carbonate, and they had hot springs. So it would be like the place that people went to soak their sick bodies in the hot springs to get medicinal help. But by the time the water reached down to Laodicea, it would run down, these hot spring water would run down. It was pretty much useless. And it mingled with the cool water that came from Colossae right here. So Colossae would get the spring water, the cold springs, and here you had the hot springs, and you put those two together, and you know what you get? Lukewarm water. Laodicea was rich because of its trade route, but they were dependent on the smaller town of Colossae for their drinking water. The contrast between the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea is stark. Philadelphia was poor and did not have influence in their community, as we saw last week. However, Laodicea was rich and appeared to have great influence in their community. Philadelphia was mistreated. Laodicea was prospering. Philadelphia was dependent on Jesus and faithful to him, and Laodicea was independent of Jesus and turned their back on him. 
as we've seen countless times. Fame, financial prosperity, and popularity does not mean that God is abiding in the church. In fact, the rich, popular, and easy-living Christians in Laodicea were in fact Christless. I believe that this is Laodicea. If you were to take one church and point to which one does the church in America as a whole look like most, this would be the one right here. And contrary to the quote-unquote thriving ministry of Joyce Myers that is on your billboards all over the city, I think she fits perfectly with Laodicea, a leader of a Laodicean church. Today we're going to see that just because you're prosperous and having a million-dollar home and estate doesn't mean that you know Christ. In fact, I would argue that that might point to not having Christ. Today we're going to see how Jesus addresses a church that is missing the one thing that is really important, Christ himself. That's what matters. Our passage breaks down into four sections, Christ's self Description in verse 14, Christ's evaluation in verses 15 to 17, Christ's exhortation in verses 18 to 19, and Christ's promises in verses 20 to 22. We start with Christ's self-description. Notice, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Jesus says, in effect, In his self-description, he says, I am the authentic revealer and creator. Let's look at these three descriptions. I'm the authentic revealer and creator. He starts with the amen. The article at the beginning, when it says the amen, the article, the, points to Jesus being the superior, the one and only, the amen. He is the highest quality, the amen. It points to the certainty or credibility of Christ. He is the affirmed one. Amen points to the fact that Jesus was a well-established truth. He was an affirmed truth. He is the reliable one. He is a fact. He is fixed and unchangeable. In Hebrew, the idea of amen means that that which is sure or valid, the authenticity of who Christ is and what he has done. This church needed a reminder of that. There is one Lord, one master, and there is one authentic one. And that amen is Jesus Christ. They needed to know that. It's developed in the second little phrase, the faithful and true witness. This title is meant to further explain, like I said, the, the previous title, The Amen. He is not only the tr- sure and authentic one, he is also the one who testifies or witnesses or reveals the glory of God. He is faithful to testify to the glory of God. He is true in his testimony of the glory of God. The emphasis on, is on the reliability of Christ as the divine revealer of God. I I think this is so important. What matters in my text today and what I preach today is only the part that exposes Christ in this passage because it's really all about what he says. 
He is the authentic one. He is the real one. His testimony or revelation is trustworthy and true. He's the one we need to look to. And third, we see he's the beginning of the creation of God. No, that does not mean that he was the first one created. The church's view of Christ is obviously taking a hit. And he is the active influence that began God's creation is what it means. He is the originator. He is the initiator. He's the starter of the church. This description, the beginning of the creation of God, is very much like Paul's letter to the Colossians. The firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean that he was the first human born. It means he was the preeminent one. He's the superior one. He's the one that was part of creating the world. He was one of the members in the Trinity that was creating the world. Let us create man in our image. It appears that both cities at some point along the road, had begun to take a low view of Christ, regarding Christ as a lesser being. Here Jesus reminds them that he is the very source of life and all that is involved with it. He's the authentic, reliable one. He is the faithful, true revealer of God, and he is the one who is the creator of all of God's creation. Jesus is all of this. And nothing less than all of this. Now, Jesus moves from his self-description to his evaluation of the church. Look at this. This would be hard to hear, wouldn't you? Can you imagine hearing this, Red? I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The professing church is a useless church. Mark it down. Jesus states, in effect, this church is a useless and self-deceived church. Let's look at this twofold evaluation of the church. He first starts with, They are lukewarm. They are the lukewarm church. I know your deeds. This is a phrase used in most most of the church's letters in Revelation, right? It points to the evidence of their works. These works reveal the condition of the church. In this case, it's no different. The works are then described by Christ. And notice it says that you are neither cold nor hot. The interpretation of this passage for many years was thought to be pointing to spiritually cold and, or spiritually hot for Christ. And again, this is one reason that you don't always take what uh, church history says. In interpretation, they even said this sometimes. But this makes little sense. Jesus would not have put on the same level as desire for them to either be spiritually dead or spiritually alive. You understand, Jesus doesn't want hot or cold Christians. And if you're going to say hot means spiritually alive and cold means spiritually dead, he doesn't want one of those. He wants only hot if you're going to talk about it that way. He doesn't want dead Christians. He doesn't want dead people. Okay? That's not what it's talking about. It is better to look at the location of the historical city 
to get the understanding. Like I told you, this background is perfect. Hierapolis is the hot springs. Colossae is the cold springs. When the two waters met, what did you get? Lukewarm water. And which was what? Useless. Hierapolis was the Zephyr Hills of the area of Lycos Valley. The water had, or not, not Hierapolis, but rather Colossae. And Hierapolis had the hot water, the springs that were used for medicinal, medicinal, uh, medicinal, ha, ah. yes, for medicine. Ah, trying. But when they came together, they became useless water. As a matter of fact, you tasted the water, and it would make you want to throw up. It's a perfect illustration, and they would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. You're saying, Jesus, we are a useless church, just like our water is useless. You're saying we're useless. He says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. He says, in effect, again, highlighting the spiritual bankruptcy of the church. You make me want to vomit. Now, this is not a good thing, coming from the one who is reliable and his witness is true. He knows them. The one who is, in fact, a member of the God who had created everything, he's saying, you know what? You make me want to throw up. This is not a case of immaturity. This isn't a case of uh, being on the fence. You know, you've heard being on the fence, lukewarm, get off the fence on the left or the right. It's not that. That's not what this passage is talking about. He's saying, don't be useless. You're actually a dead church. The scariest thing is, is that they think they're a living church. And they say they're a living church. They say that they're something when they're, in fact, they're nothing. Again, the difference between Sardis and this church is interesting. Because... There, it's somebody's looking from the outside in saying, you have the name that you're alive, but you're dead. Here, they are saying that they're alive. They're saying that they're something when, in fact, they're dead. In other words, they're publishing, look at us. We're all that. When, in fact, they're dead. That makes Jesus very unhappy. <laughs> Christ does not like a church that says, I'm with him, and yet they're not. They are literally the self-deceived church. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This signals the reason for an upcoming command from Christ. That I advise from you to buy from me. So this gives a further description of the church's condition. And this gives more reason for Christ's command to them to change. The because is linked to what is to come. Because it's a similar language found in the coming. Rich, poor, blind, and naked. You say, again, this is so important. This is one step down from that church in Sardis, as I mentioned. In Sardis, it was outward acknowledgement that they were believers. 
They had the name that they were alive, but here it's worse. The church is all about self-proclamation. Billboards. Come to me, I give you life. Come to my conference next week, and I'll give you life. Doesn't that sound very familiar? I hope nobody in this church goes to that conference, you hear me? If you do, please, come talk to me, I'll explain it to you. The lady's a false teacher, you hear me? And her multi-million dollar property is garbage. Exposes her heart. Is that hard to hear? I hope so. I hope. I'm very direct. Don't find yourself there unless you're going to evangelize outside it. They were rich materially, this church in Laodicea. Unfortunately, this led to a high view of their own abilities and value. It appears this church had a problem with distinguishing material wealth with spiritual wealth. The pride in their wealth goes further with the next little phrase. The normal order is reversed for a reason. Instead of, I have become wealthy, so I am rich. It says, I am rich and I have become wealthy. This is Jesus' way of emphasizing how they pridefully describe themselves. And in fact, they are saying, I have made myself rich on my own. We are self-made millionaires in today's language. This is developed further in that next phrase, I have need of nothing. This church suffered from a horrible case of self-sufficiency. I have it all figured out. I'm in need of nothing. What the true witness now states is that everything you think of yourself is wrong. The Creator says you are dead wrong concerning your state and your condition. Ooh, that's scary, isn't it? Can you imagine being told this? I wonder how it went when they were sitting there and they were hearing this. Because this was a literal church and they were hearing this. This is what Jesus says of you. You're rich. You say you're rich, but you're really poor. You say you're, you have all these things, but you're really naked. You say you're alive, but you're dead. Notice he says, and you do not know that. This church's self-evaluation was so corrupted by their sinful hearts that they did not even see their horrible condition. They did not even know that they were, in fact, the opposite of how they described themselves. It is you that is wretched. The language is emphatic. This is a direct, stern rebuke. I once again find it interesting that Jesus often saves his hardest rebuke for the professing believers. Folks, get this. The list of conditions that follows are Christ's description of a church. While Paul does at one point call himself wretched in Romans 7.24, the difference here is the church does not think that they're wretched. Christ is calling them wretched a state of extreme misery or unhappiness. They are in in a state of spiritual bankruptcy in light of God's holy command and exhortation and revelation. They are literally miserable. That is pitiful. It pictures a person who should be pitied because they are in a dangerous 
in a danger of eternal hell. They are running headlong towards a collision with a holy and just God. While they may think they need nothing, in fact, the opposite is true. And they did not know it. They are poor. It carries with it the idea of a destitute beggar who is completely broke. They are completely broke spiritually. While they claim to be rich, they are spiritual beggars in reality. The irony is thick here, isn't it? You see it all in the physical realm when it's not about this. It's not about riches. It's not about these things. It's about your heart. And your heart is poor. It's miserable. You're blind. The city was known for their eye medication that they produced that mixed with the water from Hierapolis and the soil that was in their area to make a salve that was thought to cure and, and, and help eyes. It, isn't it funny? Think about it. They're cities known for helping the eyes. And Jesus then turns around and says, but you're spiritually blind. You could even have, you could think, oh, well, there were some of those CEOs of that making the salve for people in the area. You know, maybe they were in the church, a part of the church. And he's saying, in effect, look, just because you know how to heal eyes doesn't mean your spiritual eyes are anything. You're actually blind. You can't see. And they're naked. Again, in a city that was one of the wealthiest in Asia, was it, they were in fact naked, as Jesus would describe them. Nakedness was obviously a shameful thing in a city known for wool garments, correct? The nakedness obviously is metaphorical for spiritual nakedness. That is, a need to be clothed with God's deliverance from the shame of sin. This church was to be pitied more than all churches. Their condition was worse than them all. The scariest thing was that they did not appear to even recognize their horrible condition. They didn't even see it. They were like the king with no clothes. It was a whole church of kings without clothes. They walked around and thought they were good, but they were actually dead. Oh, our real spiritual value, folks, is not found in how much money we make or what we wear or what we drive or where we live or whether we think we're something. Mark that down. Our spiritual value is determined by our own humble submission to the Lord. The church saw their wealth and their associated their material wealth with their spiritual identity. Isn't that what Joel, or Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers and all of them do? They associate with their wealth as their value with Christ. I must be something of value. When in fact, that's the opposite. The opposite is true. Everything you say, the opposite is true. This church thought they were more than they were. I think, unfortunately, this may describe a large amount of churches in America, even believers in our country. This evaluation of the church is the worst of all descriptions. It suggests that the church is, to the most part, made up of pretending Christians, fake Christians, Christians who thought they were something when, in fact, they were dead in sin, Christians that considered themselves better than others, but were in fact dead in sin. What is one of the main things Christ 
hates. You ready? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. How do you identify whether there's hypocrisy? Here's how you identify. If you're great at telling everybody else about their sin and you don't see your own, that's screaming, you've got a heart problem. Do you know how often I hear of this? People that I think are very, very faithful walking with the Lord and then they go away from the faith. They don't submit to God. People that I thought were all that. And you know why I thought they were all that? Because they could point out sin. They were good at revealing sin and saying, that's sin and that's sin and that's sin and that's sin. They shouldn't be doing that. I've had friends that would preach down at Ebor City, calling people to repentance and telling them, you are dying and going to hell. And that person, that guy right now, is as far from Christ as you can get. Preaching out there saying, you wicked sinners, repent. A dead guy right now. Spiritually dead. A good friend. Listen, folks, that's what this church was all about. They were fake. They could point out sin, but they didn't check their heart. Quit pointing out sin in others' lives and look at your own heart. We are on the verge of this. All of us. Any one of us could be in these churches. Any one of us could be one of these Christians. Any of us in this room. I see it so much. Oh, God, have mercy on me. That was my prayer last night. Oh, God, protect me. Expose me. Show me my sin. I don't want to be fake. I don't want him to say, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want him to say that about me. But I know I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to stray. So I need to be on my knees all the time, don't I? And you do too. Notice Christ's exhortation to him. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Oh, what an exhortation here, huh? The irony is obvious, right? It's thick. He's basically saying, see, you see who you are? You really need to buy the very thing that you think you have. You think you have all this, but you really don't. You need to buy it from me. Now, is he saying literally get out some money and buy these things? No, I think he's pointing to the reality that they need to go to him. They need to turn to him. He's the only one that can help them. Stop trying to get your delight in the things of the world and find your satisfaction in me. Because after all, faith in me is the gold, isn't it? 
He's calling for a humble recognition. His exhortation is filled with irony, as I said. He uses words that highlight how everything the church thought they had is the opposite. He says, I advise you. The one who thinks that they are in need of nothing. In fact, Jesus gives them counsel and advice. Now, do you see the irony in that again? I don't need you. I don't need anything. I don't need advice. I don't need counsel. Look at me. I'm okay. When in fact, he's saying, let me give you some counsel. (laughs) This is scary, isn't it? He says, I advise you. You need advice on how to survive. (laughs) He says, to buy from me. This is highly sarcastic. In effect, Jesus says, you so-called rich ones need to buy from me what you cannot afford. (laughs) You rich ones, buy from me what cannot be bought. In effect, you who think you are in need of nothing are in fact in total need of me. Isaiah 55.1 Lo, everyone who thirsts and comes to the water and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Oh, dear ones, listen to me. Listen closely. The scariest place to be is thinking that you are fine. Did you hear me? If you look around at everyone else and see their sin, you find yourself seeing everyone else's sin continuously and never seeing your own. If you regularly consider yourself to be a pretty good person while continuously seeing everybody else's sin, you are in danger of death. You are where these dead professing Christians were. Now, if you see your sinfulness, there's hope. But it's not found in cleaning up yourself. It's not found in thinking you're going to fix things. It's found in Christ. Go to Him. He advises them to buy three things from him. He says, buy gold. This is probably a reference to the faith that is tried and true. Gold refined by fire. This is metaphorical language. He is not saying literally purchase refined or pure gold for me. Rather, this is a picture of personal, genuine faith brought about by God's grace. It is this faith in Christ that results in spiritual wealth. This faith. Gold results in genuine spiritual riches. The riches are a right standing with God and the eternal promises of glory. So buy genuine faith. They can't buy genuine faith, right? Can you buy faith? No, but it's irony again. He's trying to get them to say, if you're brought to the place where you're told to buy something you can't buy, what should you do? You should go, I can't afford it. I can't do this. But you got to have it to live. What should you do? Go to the one that can get it. And that does give it. And who is that? Christ. You have perfect faith? Is your faith good? How's your faith doing? If you think, oh, well, I'm pretty good. You're probably on danger. You're in danger right now. We should all cry out with that publican, right? I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, give me help. 
give me faith. I can't buy it. The irony is, is to try to smash them. Try to get them to see what? You can't do it. That's what he's trying to get them to do. You can't do it. You can't buy this from me. He's just—he's being overly sarcastic. Come on, grab this. You need me. As we know from Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And what? And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. He then says, buy white garments. Probably referring to righteousness, which comes by means of faith in Christ. As we know from Romans 3.22, even, right, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Instead of facing judgment or exposure of our position of shame over sin, we can have Christ's righteousness through faith in Christ. Nakedness is a common symbol for the for adverse judgment of God. How much more shame would there be for the people of this church based on the fact that they were only professing Christians, not genuine believers in Christ? Oh, I think some of the greatest judgment in all the world that is coming in the future is for those that profess the name of Christ but are not real believers. That is a scary, scary place to be. At this point, some might say, well, man, you're making me question my salvation. Am I really right? Good. I'm sorry. Good. Are you depending on Christ? Is He your hope? Is your only source of life Him? Or is it yourself? And your good deeds? And your church attendance? And your kindness to your co-workers. Those things are nothing in the sight of God. You need righteousness. And your righteousness comes from who? Christ alone. It's Him alone. The third and final necessary purchase is ISAV. This probably, again, is metaphorical for spiritual understanding. Spiritual awareness, which leads to knowing what is right in the sight of God. And again, this is, this is only, the believe, only the believer or, or only the one where the Spirit is working would get this. And I think he's using these metaphors intentionally. For the unbeliever that will not come to him and will not humble, and it's not of the chosen, I think in some ways it just judges them because they can't get it. They just look at this and go, what? That makes no sense. I don't get it. But for the one that God is crushing their heart... You hear, you are spiritually blind and you need ISAB. You know what you think? You think, oh, I lack understanding. I need God. Because God's crushing you and you understand that your only hope is who? Him. Oh, folks, we need true knowledge of who God is, don't we? We need to understand who He is, don't we? How do we get this? We spend 14 more hours in our study this week and we'll get it. We'll get it, right? Study your Bible more. That's all you got to do is study your Bible more. You'll get it. No. 
You need God. You need God to open up the eyes of your heart so that you may know how good He is. You need to cry out to Him, Oh, open the eyes of my heart that I may see your glory and enjoy you and delight in you above the world. Please make me see. It is important to note for this faith to happen, the church needed to know that they were spiritually poor. For the righteousness to be imputed to them, they needed to know that they needed His righteousness. For biblical understanding to be the direction of their life and their condition, they needed to know that they were what? Spiritually blind. And all of us that think we have it all figured out are really, in fact, just like the church in Laodicea. So now Jesus calls them to respond appropriately to their needy condition in light of Him. Notice He says, He gives them a call for zealous, zealous repentance. He says, in effect, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Notice Jesus gives the church a reason for repentance. He says, because, or therefore, he reproves and disciplines his loved ones. That's attached by that therefore. When we find ourselves in sin, when we recognize our sin, there is only one option. Zealous repentance. Turn from sin and embrace Christ. Turn to Christ, acknowledge your sin and need of him. Why? Because if we are His, and if we don't turn and commit to Him, what will He do? He will discipline us. That's what He says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Boy, in a, in a culture and a society that tell, tells us, just blame it on a mental illness, this doesn't go over very well, does it? Just blame it. Hey, this is just the way I was. I was raised this way. I get these things and I'm just this way. Come on. Now, I'm not saying do what Adrian Peterson did and break blood on your children, by the way. But I will tell you this. When we read this, this is going to look a little interesting, isn't it? Turn over to Hebrews for a second. This is interesting. Now, just make sure, because this is going live stream here. They might think that this means I should get out the scourge on my children. But, beloved, what do we do with verses like this in Hebrews? Well, what we do is we say this is culturally different, so now we just don't use this part of the Bible. Wrong. Look at Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 4. This is a warning. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
unless you live in America. But if you are without discipline, of which all, which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? It goes on. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. All discipline for the moment, or excuse me, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Wow. These are some frightening words, aren't they? If we are God's children, we need to realize God takes sin seriously, doesn't he? And if God does not, how does it describe God? It describes him as scourging his children. Do you understand what scourge is? Flogging his children with a whip. I wonder if it left a mark. Yeah. Left a mark. So are we going to call God unjust now because he spanks? Interesting, isn't it? The fact of the matter is everything the world thinks the opposite is true. Everything the world thinks the opposite is true. Here's the facts, ladies and gentlemen. Get this clearly. If you are not getting discipline from the Lord, you are not his child, period. And you better be afraid, very afraid. Now, does that mean you beat your children in anger? No, that's sin. But you discipline your children because you love your children, just like the Father loves us and He disciplines us because He doesn't want to stay us to stay in sin. Because He knows that our greatest delight is Him, not sin. If you find yourself in sin and you don't experience God's discipline, you should be very afraid. Because of instead of discipline, you may receive eternal judgment. And let me tell you, that's a lot worse. I'd rather take a spanking any day than eternity in hell. Right? Now, we can't, there's no way we can get away from this. This is what he says. It's hard to hear, but it's the truth, right? He loves them whom he disciplines. Now, there's hope. There's hope for us that are in sin. There's great hope. Listen, our Father just wants one thing. Humble, dependent hearts. 
wants. All he wants is for us to turn to him and say, I've sinned against you. Father, please forgive me. That's all he wants. He wants broken hearts that love him and rely upon him. And then he is also that kind, loving father that you can curl up in his lap and he gives you hugs and says, I love you. How do I know? Because Christ makes the promises to the church in Laodicea. He says it to them. Look what he says. He says this to them. He says, look, if you're zealous and repent, look. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes the conqueror, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Oh, beloved, do you see this promise? Do you see this? Listen, it's not clean yourself up. It's just go to him. It's just run to Christ. He's so good. Beloved, some have argued that this is not talking about this is a church, so it can't be evangelistic. I disagree. I think it is evangelistic. You know why? Because the metaphor points to him being outside the church, knocking on the door of the church. Do you think it's that way? This is a church full of lost people. So y'all that go out to Joyce Meyer's conference and you evangelize, knock on the door for Christ. Say, he's your hope. He's your hope. This is literal. A need for God. That's what he's talking about. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. You know, I think it's so neat here because the contrast, those that are, um, those are, that are highly Calvinistic at this point would be saying, wait a second, wait a second. There should be a little bit of a, uh, a tension going on in your heart here. You know why? Because you remember last week in Philadelphia, what was it? Who opened the door and closed the door? Jesus did. I opened the door. And when I opened the door, I also shut the door. And nobody can open it if I shut it, right? Wait a second. Who's going to open this door? My voice opens the door. Wait. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, who's opens the door? The people do. Wait a second. I thought Jesus opens doors and closed doors. Is he mixing his metaphor? Is he mixing his metaphors? No, I think he's actually carrying it along because it's human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Both are true. I think the reality is, is this. Listen closely. Here's the call for you that are stuck in sin. Repent and believe. Turn and embrace Christ. That's your responsibility. Now, you're only going to do it by God's grace, but you're called to do it. Do it because he was working. He opens the door as you open the door. As you come to Him. As you repent. As you trust in Him. It's both. Repent and believe. That's the call. That's the command. You have a responsibility to turn from the sin and trust in Him. And God will work. God is working. 
if you do that. Anybody crushed by your sin right now? Anybody ready? Okay, I need forgiveness. Anybody? Go to Him. Run to Christ. Pursue Him now. He loves you. How much does He love you? He loves you so much that He will come in and dine with you. And you with Him. Oh, do you see the beautiful abiding relationship that's here? It's on display. The display is what? You will come and you will enjoy Christ. You will dine with the God of the universe, the one that created it all, the authentic one. Oh, folks, do you understand what a glorious promise this is? And when does it start? As soon as you repent. As soon as you repent. As soon as you turn to him, he's there. And he loves you. And it's like, come to me, my child. I love you. If you repent, Christ promises an abiding relationship with the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the creator. Do you understand how glorious this is? If you are in sin, God promises to reward you with a relationship with him if you forsake your sin and turn to him. There is hope for the repentant one in the church. Jesus will dwell with you. No sin is worth staying in that sin. No sin. He's better. The lie of Satan to the sinner is this. You've blown it too bad. You're wicked. You're so wretched. Don't come around us. Don't hang out with us. You're too wretched. After all, you're shamed by your nakedness. Don't come. Don't go to that Savior. But the Savior says, no, no, come to me. And I will clothe you with my righteousness. And you will be my child. And I will abide with you and you will abide with me. And you won't just abide with me. You will literally reign with me. Look at it. Look at it. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. I don't know about you guys. This is crazy love, isn't it? This is absolutely crazy you got a church full of dead people that hate God, think they're something, but they're not. And he says to them, turn to me, and I'm going to let you rule with me. That makes, that is totally different than anything this world has to offer. Listen to me. Yes, God disciplines. Yes, God disciplines, but he also rewards. And who is his reward? Him. You get to be with him. You get to enjoy him. You get to reign with him. Can you believe that he would love us like that? What a God, right? I want to warn all of you of one thing. Listen. Out of all the seven churches, 
Who do you think you're least like? If you think you're least like Laodicea, you could in fact be Laodicea. If you think you are all that, you are probably the opposite. We need Christ, don't we? I don't want to be popular. I don't want to be powerful. I don't want to have riches here on earth. I don't want all that junk. I just want Jesus. I just want to know him and be satisfied with him. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. When we look at all these churches, Lord, we see ourselves, unfortunately, and often we see ourselves in the ones that are sinful more than we see ourselves in the ones that were faithful. We see our propensity to sin and we call out to you, please forgive us. Please change us. Please sustain us. Please help us to delight in you. God, as we've gone through these churches, we are reminded that our circumstances don't look very much like the two churches that look faithful. We live in a city that looks more like Laodicea than does Philadelphia. And God, we don't want to fall into the trap of exalting those things. God, we pray for mercy. We pray that you will help us to be faithful. And we pray most of all, Lord, that you will be the satisfaction of our souls. Help us, Father. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior.